All right, good morning again. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 25. If you remember, we're studying through the book of Acts. We took a two-week break while we uh, did some special studies in uh, Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, but now we're back on track. We're studying through the book of Acts. I want to look at all of chapter 25 today, so go ahead and sigh right now if you'd like, (laughs) but I will get you out of here on time. After all, I'm a grandparent now. I know what that's all about. I just want to see my granddaughter. I'm going to teach the parenting class, and then uh, afterwards, I'm going to teach a one-minute grandparenting class. It's just where to buy the best candy is all that, is it? Taught Cecilia where the chocolate milk lives at our house. So she goes over to, and she looks up at the cabinet where the Nestle's is, and she looks at me and goes... Mary and Pam said, what's she doing? Oh, she wants chocolate milk. It's a, grand, it's a grandpa thing, so. Anyway, we're in Acts 25. So see, there it was, the whole class, just, just like that. Parenting was a lot harder, believe me, but. Uh, that's our text. Our topic, after two years in a Caesarea prison cell, Paul is brought out to be questioned Amidst all the pomp of a formal state function, the title of our message, Pomp in Circumstances. Now when Festus had come to the province, after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. And when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in anything at all. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said... I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you very well know. For if I am an offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, You have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. When they had been there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a certain man left a prisoner by Felix, about whom the chief priests and the elders of the Jews informed me when I was in Jerusalem, asking for a judgment against him. To them I answered, It is not the custom of the Romans to deliver any man to destruction before the accused meets the accusers face to face and has opportunity to answer for himself concerning the charge against him. 
Therefore, when they had come together without any delay, the next day I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought in. When the accuser stood up, they brought no accusation against him of such things as I supposed, but had some questions against him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who had died, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. And because I was uncertain of such questions, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there be judged concerning these matters. But when Paul uh, appealed to be reserved for the decision of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp, they had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city. At Festus's command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Let's pray. Father, we see that Paul is being treated uh, maliciously and unreasonably, and yet he bore it as the prisoner of Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would see your grace in him in his situation, and that we would understand ourselves, uh, Lord, as those who are recipients of that grace and those who want to share that with others who have not yet come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there's anybody here today who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, pray that your Holy Spirit would be here and that he would powerfully and wonderfully reveal Jesus to them as the one who has risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, after having died for their sins, that they might live forever. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I was researching items that are kept safe and then rarely put out on public display. I came across a 1992 article about the Emancipation Proclamation, the Civil War document signed by President Lincoln that proclaimed most of the slaves of the southern states free. The article read in part, and I quote, Handled with white gloves and under careful guard, the fragile original of the Emancipation Proclamation was removed from its darkened vault on Friday in preparation for a rare five-day exhibition. Subsequent showings of the safeguarded document are almost always described as rare displays. I was thinking about things kept safe until they are brought out for public display because God did something like that with the Apostle Paul in chapter 25. With the Jews still intent on murdering Paul, God kept him safe, albeit in a darkened Roman prison cell. Over a two-year period, God, God brought Paul out occasionally to display him to governors and kings, culminating with Paul's appearance at a state dinner with all of the dignitaries and important people of that whole province. It dawned on me that God does the same in our lives, though we may not recognize it. He designs our circumstances to keep us safe. He arranges situations in order to show us to others. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, God works to safeguard you. And number two, God wants to showcase you. 
First of all, in verses 1 through 12, God works to safeguard you. We left Paul in a prison cell in Caesarea. According to all accounts, it was not a very comfortable imprisonment. When we see him standing before King Agrippa in the next chapter, as this story continues, he will mention he is in chains. Paul was being kept safe, I believe, by God. After two years absent from Jerusalem and having planted no new churches or preached no new sermons in synagogues, the Jewish leaders were still bent on murdering him. If they were willing to ambush him while he was in Roman custody, how much easier would it be to do so if he were free and without Roman protection? Actually, a better strategy for the Jewish leaders would have been to say, hey, let this guy go. Uh, it's funny how people are stupid when they're trying to be smart. They should have just said, hey, we have a, do us a favor. Let this guy go. And they would have been easily able to kill him, but instead they were bent on another pathway. You and I are in no less peril than the Apostle Paul. You have enemies both without and within. The world and the devil are constantly plotting to ambush you. Your own flesh works to destroy your walk with God. God works to safeguard you. The trouble is it can seem to you as if you are in some kind of a prison cell or some kind of restricted environment. You might not recognize God's protection because you find it personally unpleasant. And in your case, you may not understand the potential danger that God is protecting you from. And so let's overview Paul's situation and make application of it to ourselves. Back again in verse 1, it says, Festus had come to the province, and after three days he went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. Then the high priest and the chief men of the Jews informed him against Paul, and they petitioned him, asking a favor against him that he would summon him to Jerusalem while they lay in ambush along the road to kill him. Festus took over for Felix as governor over that region. He went to Jerusalem to make nice with his new subjects. The Jews saw it as an opportunity to take advantage of Festus's inexperience, especially in affairs of the Jews. Later on in his talk before Agrippa, he shows his ignorance of Jewish affairs. He doesn't even know why Paul is under arrest. It has something to do with somebody named Jesus who Paul claims is alive but is dead. And so he knows nothing about uh, what's going on or biblical Christianity or the, the Jewish uh, faith at all. It wasn't enough for these guys that Paul was in a prison cell. They wanted him dead. Your enemies want to absolutely destroy your life. They will never relent until you go home to be with the Lord. You can grow stronger in the Lord, but your enemies never grow any weaker. The world and the flesh and the devil are not getting weaker. The world is getting worse, and you should just shout out a hearty amen to that. Your flesh, though you think you're keeping it at bay, it's always there. Feed it a little bit, and you'll find out just how strong it is. And the devil, uh, he's going to go out fighting. Uh, he, he's, you know, as you read through the New Testament, get to the book of the Revelation, he's like a cornered animal. He's the wolverine of spiritual beings. I mean, he just, you don't want to mess with him. He just gets worse and worse. Nobody's getting uh, any calmer as things go on. In verse 4, but Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea, that he himself was going there shortly. Therefore, he said, let those who have authority among you go down with me and accuse this man to see if there is any fault in him. This is power politics. 
Festus wanted to please the Jews, but he also needed to establish that he was the governor, he was in charge, not they. Paul had no say-so in these matters, even though they affected his very life. There were, the Romans were keeping him imprisoned illegally, as it were. The Jews were plotting to kill him and ambush him, and he had no say-so in it. You may feel as though you are in some circumstance that is beyond your control. Things at work or at home or in church even may seem to be holding you back. There may seem to be boundaries and restrictions you don't understand. God is in control of that. He is working even in the lives of non-believers, if necessary, to safeguard you. Verse 6 says this, and when he had remained among them more than 10 days, he went down to Caesarea. The next day, sitting on the judgment seat, he commanded Paul to be brought. When he had come, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood about and laid many serious complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. While he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. If you were here for our previous studies, uh, these were the three areas that Paul had been falsely accused in. He'd already given his defense in front of Felix. Now he says in front of Festus, hey, nothing has changed. I wasn't guilty then, then I'm not guilty now. Paul was seriously mistreated. His rights were violated. His freedom restricted. But his situation wasn't really about rights. It was about his being kept safe. God was safeguarding him. Now, maybe I can illustrate it like this. Your, if you're a parent, your children often feel they are being mistreated, do they not? Oh, mom, dad, all the other kids are going to this party. Everybody in the world is going to be there. I am the only kid that isn't going to be there. I will be ostracized, hated. I will never make it in social circles. I'll probably never hold down a job <laughs> if I don't go to this party. I know that there's going to be ex-convicts there. I, I know that, you know, they're filming, you know, things for the internet there. I mean, you know, it just, but I'll be careful. I'm, you can trust me. I'll have my cell phone on vibrate the whole time. And, and you're like, well, no, honey, you know, I just, we, your mom and I, we just don't feel comfortable. Oh, you never feel comfortable. You know, you know how it is. I've heard that it's like that. You're just too restrictive. And, 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 you know, it really kind of, it can cut sometimes, especially if you're a Christian, because you, you kind of have this thought, I, and I don't really think it's from the Lord, but you have this thought that, yeah, we are too restrictive. You know, our poor kids, you know, they're growing up in this little sheltered bubble, and, you know, after all, maybe it would be okay for them to just get beat up every now and then, you know? Maybe that would build character, you know? You need a good beating every now and then. And, and so go ahead, you know, go out to that party or whatever. And where is it? It's out in the wash? Okay, fine, you know, and stuff, and... and uh, uh, and so it's, it's just very difficult. By the way, do they have washes around here? Do you even know what I'm talking about? Okay, time out. Down in San Bernardino, <laughs> down in the real world, they had what they called washes. And uh, what they are is they're, they're just old, they're drainage canals and things that the Army Corps of Engineers built for flash flooding. And most of the time they're empty and, uh, you know, they look like empty riverbeds. Uh, and that's where some kids... <laughs> would go to party uh, 
out in the wash. Uh, and so, uh, and lots of really ugly, terrible things happened out there, I've heard. So anyway, around here, I don't know where you go, but, because uh, I've never really partied hard around here, you know. But, uh, <laughs> I'm sure there are places, and so you're, but the point is, your children, they always seem, you're just so restrictive, the boundaries are just crushing and we're never gonna develop, you know, and, and it's just a killer kind of a thing. And, and here's something that, that I want you to think about. A lot of times, you know, maybe all the time, but, but we're kind of dense, when you're dealing with your kids, I think you can step back and, and God would say to you, now that's how I deal with you. I've put boundaries in your life. You don't like some of the boundaries I've put in your life. And you see how your children are whining and complaining and giving you a hard time? That's what you do to me, Gene. I love you. I really do see what's coming ahead. I know what's going to happen if you leave this church, if you get out of this family, if you get this job, if this happens or that. I see those things. I am putting you in this situation so that you do not ruin your life. And all the time I'm just whining and whining and just begging God to let me have my way. If you're feeling mistreated or restricted, it's probably for your own good that God has you in that situation. And so in verse nine, but Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So it's some kind of a wild compromise. You'll be before the Sanhedrin, but I'll be the one in charge. And, and so he's really fishing here for a compromise. So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong as you very well know. For if I am an offender, if I've committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. How do you deal with a guy like this? If I'm guilty, kill me now. But if there's nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. Going back to Jerusalem meant submitting to a lower court, the Jewish Sanhedrin. He knew their verdict already. It would be guilty and the sentence would be death. Paul instead invoked his right as a Roman citizen to appeal to a higher court. Was he wrong in demanding his rights? Well, he was exercising his rights within the will of God for his life. He wasn't trying to save his life. He said that. The Lord had clearly told Paul he would go to Rome and preach the gospel. Putting two and two together, Paul thought, if I go back to Jerusalem, I'm going to be found guilty and killed that's not the direction the Lord has me going. I'm a Roman citizen. I can invoke my right to appeal to Caesar. Plus, I would add to that, we don't know from the text, but I mean, Paul's a spiritual guy. I'm sure he's praying about this, and I'm sure the Lord is telling him what to do. Jake wrote, uh, read this morning in his little devotion about how you know, God will tell you what to say. And so on Paul, I think he's going through this, and he's thinking, okay, Lord, sure, I'll appeal to Caesar. And so... He is acting with wisdom within the will of God. You have the right to remain in the will of God. Too often we demand our rights in order to get free from God's will. I would cite carefully, but I would cite nonetheless, unbiblical divorces as an illustration. The marriage seems an oppressive prison, but there are no biblical grounds for divorce and no physical abuse that would advise separation. Still, one or both Christians demand their legal right to divorce. 
It's hard for them to see the marriage as God's safekeeping, usually because they are only looking at themselves and their own happiness or unhappiness. Verse 12, then Festus, after he had conferred with the council, answered, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. The council here refers to Festus's legal advisors, not the Jews. There's no reason to confer with them. There was no way around Paul's legal appeal. Once a Roman citizen appealed to the higher court, he had to be sent there. He was on his way to Rome, and now he would be guarded all along the way. He had ensured himself of a proper Roman guard. Any biblical boundaries God has placed in your life are his safeguard. His rules for marriage, for parenting, for employers and employees, for life in the church, all of them are safeguards. Ignore them and you will be free, but your enemies are lying in wait to ambush you. You know, having freedom isn't always the, the greatest thing. If, if one step down the road, you're going to be ambushed by your enemies. Ambushes, some of them are obvious, we think immediately of people, you know, walking away from the Lord and, and just kind of living their own life and being ambushed by sin and just being out in the world. But there are subtle ambushes as well. You can make a choice that is not in and of itself wrong or sinful, but it might not be the right choice for you. It, it, it might not be the direction God wants you to go in. There's a lot of different ambushes I've seen over the years. Let me get a little bit controversial here. Please don't hate me. People ask me all the time, can a Christian woman work outside the home? And the answer to that is yes, but not every Christian woman can work outside the home. And sadly, now that I've established that and you don't hate me, right? Sadly, I've seen many gals who just get tired of being keepers at home. And, and, and there's something that happens in them and then they wanna go back out into the world and make a name for themselves and have their own life and their own career and more than I care to talk about, have ruined their families in doing so. They get out of a restriction that God has placed in their particular situation out into the world that they can't really handle and the next thing you know, their marriage is gone, they're divorced, and their life is really in a direction that God never intended it to go in. And so I'm just saying that there are some decisions that, yes, you can make them, but you, they might not be in God's will for you. Let me give you another example. There are what I call doctrinal ambushes. It's popular every few years. It seems like a particular Christian doctrine gets amplified and focused in on and then it comes into the church and, and people grab onto it. Whether it's a new way of looking at the rapture of the church or a return to Reformation theology or whatever it is, all of a sudden it's like this revival of this one tiny part of Bible doctrine. And, and people get excited about it and then they start to, you know, to fester about it and they want everybody to come over to their little position. I remember a, a fellow in our church many years ago, uh, this guy he got saved at our church, had a real gift for evangelism. You couldn't ever talk to him that he wouldn't tell you about Jesus Christ and, and, and share his faith with you and try to lead you to faith in Jesus Christ. 
And then after a while, he started into a relationship with a really sincere Christian man, but a guy that was just really steeped in a particular doctrine. Uh, and, and he, instead of talking about Christ, they only talked about that doctrine pretty soon. He was into that. It's a biblical doctrine, but it's just, it's like, you know, you've got your whole world out here and you're just looking right here through this pinhole. And then after a while, instead of talking to people about Jesus Christ and about their need to get saved, he just wanted to find Christians who were wrong, Christians who didn't believe exactly the right way about their doctrine. And everything was a fight and it was an argument. There was no joy. There was no happiness. His wife used to call me and beg me, can't you please help me? My husband's telling me I'm not in submission to him because I don't believe his doctrine. He's telling me I must believe it or I'm not even a Christian. And you know the story, probably what happened. That marriage fell apart. Everything fell apart. Leave the church. Leave Christ. Leave your home. Uh, Be careful. God has put you in a place and given you certain restrictions and boundaries for a reason because he sees ahead. And we need to be vigilant. Perfect love casts out fear. I don't want anybody to go out fearful, but you need to be vigilant. Sometimes I think we have it so well in the United States, it's comfortable that we're not as vigilant as we need to be. Your enemies want to destroy your life. They're busy doing it right now. While you're here in church hearing these things, the devil, he can't get in because we've got special you know, protection. <laughs> He's waiting for you. He's at your house. He's at your place of employment, your own flesh, which is a little bit under control here. It's got its lusts and desires. The world is plotting all these things. You are the target of many vicious and brutal enemies. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so if we will just walk with the Lord, if we will just submit to the Lord, if we will act as if God is a benevolent father and always does know what's best for us. Don't you want your kids just one time, just one time? No, you can't go to that party. Thank you, Dad. (laughs) Because I knew all along in my heart of hearts that it was an evil desire. I want to be a good person and I just, if it wasn't for you, Dad, my life would be ruined. I love you, man. You know, I mean, just (laughs) think very carefully about your circumstances. Chances are God has designed them to safeguard you from an ambush. Now, in verses 13 through 27, yes, we can get through them in the next few minutes. God wants to showcase you. I get the idea of a showcase from the word in verse 23 translated pomp. It's the Greek word fantasia. It means splendor, and it refers to a showy display. We get our English word fantastic from it. A fantastic, showy, splendid state event was held. Governor Festus invited King Agrippa and Bernice. The chief military captains were there. All of the prominent businessmen and politicians were there in their finery. In the end, it was Paul who was showcased. Brought out in chains, he nevertheless was the ambassador of the risen Savior, the true King of heaven and earth. And so let's just survey the situation rapidly in verse 13. After some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. This Agrippa is the son of Herod Agrippa I, who had martyred James and imprisoned Peter. He was too young and inexperienced to take over immediately when his father died 
And so he bided his time ruling lesser territories till ultimately given the rule of Judea and the Jews. Bernice was Agrippa's sister. Historians suggest they had an incestuous relationship. Then in verses 14 through 21, Festus goes over this situation with the Apostle Paul, how he'd inherited this prisoner and he didn't really know what to do with him. Festus was Agrippa's superior, but he was in a tough spot. He couldn't send Paul back to Jerusalem, but he really shouldn't be sending him to Rome either. He had nothing to charge him with. It was an altogether embarrassing start to his tenure as governor. And so Festus needed help. Agrippa had a better handle on Jewish affairs and more political clout with influential Jews. And by the way, just because a citizen appealed to Caesar, it didn't mean that he or she would actually be tried before Caesar. It simply meant they were appealing to the highest court in Rome. And when Festus twice in these sections used the word Augustus, referring to Caesar, he's using it as a title, as the revered one or the august one. Uh, the actual Caesar at this time is Nero. Then in verse 22, Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. So the next day when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all the men who are here present with us, you see this man about whom the whole assembly of the Jews petitioned me, both at Jerusalem and here, crying out that he was not fit to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing deserving of death and that he himself had appealed to Augustus, I decided to send him. I have nothing certain to write to my Lord concerning him. Therefore, I have brought him out before you and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the examination has taken place, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not to specify the charges against him. Now, what an amazing understatement that is. It was more than unreasonable to send a prisoner and not specify the charges. It was stupid, and it showed gross incompetence. What kind of a governor are you? Can you imagine Paul getting to Rome with, as a prisoner under Roman guard? Back then, they cared about spending money just like government today does. <laughs> at government expense, they send Paul to Rome, and there he is. Okay, what are the charges against this prisoner? None. What's he doing here? Are you crazy? Uh, when I uh, volunteer with the cops over in Lemoore, it's kind of cute because whenever somebody does something, uh, whenever something happens that's humorous, maybe, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily think this is humorous, but police have a certain sense of humor. Maybe you get bit by a dog uh, or something odd happens, you know, during one of your, uh, you know, encounters. There's a guy there who makes a screensaver of it. And, uh, you know, he's, he's got, he'll get a picture of you, and then there's a dog biting, and stuff. It goes up on all the computers, you know, and stuff, and, and they kind of rub it in that way. And, you know, maybe you work at a place like that, too, where if you do something wrong, maybe you're truck driving, you back up into something, you know, next thing you know, you've got, you know, broken glass in your seat and stuff like that. I mean, everybody, you, did you have fun like that? Does anybody have fun like that, or is it just me? Is it just me? I'm going out to the wash after this is over and just kind of hang out. Anyway, um, so, but this is much more serious. I mean, I don't know if governors do this kind of stuff, but I mean, if there was a governor's meeting after this, it's, what are you thinking, Festus? 
Sending a prisoner with no charges? What a buffoon. That's the guy. Anyway, so this is pretty serious. And then he tries to get Agrippa. He says, I'm, I'm letting you listen to him, Agrippa, so especially you because, you know, it's on you. You know, this guy, after all, you're kind of down in Jerusalem, so you tell me what to do. And so it's pretty funny, really. And I believe that God does have a very developed sense of humor. Here were gathered all the powers of Rome and Judea with all this pomp and circumstance, with all their trappings. The occasion, however, is the result of ignorance. Why are they all together? Because they have a prisoner that they don't know what to do with. It's funny. It's comical. And I think Paul saw the humor in it even though he was a prisoner. Paul was brought into their pomp. No matter what they might think, this gathering was about Paul. It was about the man of God. It was God's gathering to put Paul on display. They might have their finery, their clothing, their crowns. Imagine, I mean, just think, you know, have you ever seen these really fancy, maybe you've been to them, I never have, but maybe you've been to these fancy state dinners where, you know, or in the military where everybody's in their dress uniform with all of their ribbons and medals and all of this pomp and stuff. And then out comes Paul. Uh, His imprisonment is not a comfortable imprisonment. We know he's in chains. I'm guessing he doesn't look his best. Probably didn't have time to get down to sacks and, you know, or get a new outfit or anything like that. And from one point of view, it's pathetic. But that's not the point of view we have. I mean, you, you have an eternal point of view, and you see that God arranged all of that. All of that is like a, a frame. We've been framing some pictures lately, Pam and I, you know, and, and it's, you know, you got to pick the mat and get the right frame and all. All of that that, that they describe here is a frame around Paul. He's the one that's on display, not them. And when we get into the next chapter, Lord willing, he is going to blow their minds. It's not Agrippa asking him questions. It's Paul preaching the gospel. He is in Agrippa's face in a gracious way, so much so that Agrippa says, wait a minute, time out. Are you trying to save me? And it's an amazing thing. The man or woman of God is the pomp in any circumstance. Non-believers may lord over you. They may be more successful than you. They may have more of the world's trappings than you. They may receive more accolades than you. But when God looks upon any circumstance, it is you that is showcased in order to reveal the glory of Jesus Christ. And when you see Paul in those chains and yet you hear him, and you feel the power of his words, you understand that he is the only free person in that assembly. Tie me up, beat me, kill me. All you do is make me freer and freer. I'm I'm not just bound by chains, I'm bound in a physical body. If you kill me, I'll live forever in heaven. Can you say that, Agrippa? Can you say that, Festus? How about you, or you, or you? Will you live forever? Hey, it's one thing to sit on a throne, to have a crown. Are you going to have an eternal crown, the soul winner's crown, the crown of life? Do any of those crowns belong to you? I mean, it's just powerful stuff when you think about the reality of what's happening. It's God putting Paul on display. And, and you know, it's so easy for us to receive these things and we think, well, I'm not Paul. That's true, that's fine, but Paul, if he were here, if he was alive, he wouldn't work where you're working. He wouldn't go to your school. He wouldn't have your friends. He wouldn't have your contacts. You are him in your situation. 
And, and sure, maybe you feel restricted or, or burdened or bound or whatever, but all, it's just all around you. Maybe you feel like it's closing in on you, but it's all just there. The more that you feel that way, the greater the grace that you reveal. It, it, you know, it, it just, as the world crushes in on you, that fragrance is revealed more and more, the sweetness of what it means to suffer for the sake of Jesus Christ. You are safeguarded, maybe not in the way you'd like, but why would you want to make that call not knowing the future? Do you know your future? Do you? No, you don't. You have some expectation, but really there's a sense in which even an expectation of the future is, you know, you should be skeptical of. You don't know if you have a future beyond the next few minutes. And so let God safeguard you. I'm not saying you can never change situation, that you can never get a different job or you know, change schools or anything like that. There are some things that you are bound to by God's word, certain relationships, of course, and others you have some freedom. But even within those be very careful and say, God, maybe this is your way of safeguarding me. I'm feeling oppressed and restricted, but is there really a reason for it other than my selfishness? Is there really a reason for it other than I want what I want? And if the answer to that is no, if there's no sin involved, then maybe God has you there for protection so that you will be kept safe. And there you can be showcased. And it doesn't really matter if it's obvious to others or not. I'm not saying when you go to work tomorrow, people are going to say, wow, man, look at you. You're sure on display. I wish I was as precious as you. No, they're going to treat you just like they always do. They're going to call you a Jesus freak and quit talking when you come in the room and all those kinds of things. But God is the one that's watching he is displaying his grace through you. And there's a sense in which the more you suffer, the more grace is revealed. Trust in the Lord and his boundaries and restrictions. He's only acting the way a great parent would. And thank the Lord in every encounter. It's an opportunity to reveal him to those who are lost in the false glitter and glamour of the world. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for these things. They are so wonderful, so precious. I pray that we would receive them and that you would speak to us, Lord, about our situations and circumstances. Uh, perhaps, Lord, we've been kicking against some restrictions and boundaries in our lives. And now, Lord, at least we have the opportunity to think about them and wonder if they're not there for our own good and your glory. And while we're working all that out, Lord, I pray that we would understand that from your point of view, we are on display. And it's in a good way. The more glorious the world seems around us, the more wonderful we are in its midst. The more the man of God or the woman of God can reveal the grace of God, the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. And really, what can the world do to us, Lord? Uh, the worst that they could do is kill us, and that would be a freedom, that would be a release. We would be absent from our bodies and present with you. We need strength and we need help, Lord, every day. But you've promised that. Your Holy Spirit lives inside of us if we're born again. And so we have all the resource that we need to accomplish the work that you've called us to. And we can do it, Lord, 
with excitement and joy. And so we thank you for that. Father, I pray if anybody's here this morning doesn't know you, that they would be touched, Lord, by your spirit. They'd come forward after we close. Pray with one of the guys, Lord, to receive you as their savior. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together.